when it is getting actually organized as groups of people in places creating what we call community agency networks, deciding for themselves that they want to use this kind of power, that they're going to grow this kind of food, that they're going to have this kind of care in their community. That is the power of people coming together, recognizing each other in this era of, you know, rebuilding social infrastructure. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Indra Adnan. Indra is the co-founder of the Alternative UK political platform, which answers the question, if politics is broken, what's the alternative? Indra has a background in journalism where she came to understand that narrative is a huge part of the soft power that nations have. And she goes into great detail explaining the difference between soft power and hard power and left journalism in order to better understand that power, what to do with it and how to create stories that could bring communities together. Indra has advised government, she's built networks, she runs the Daily Alternative blog, which is part of the Alternative UK. And an integral part of her work is the citizen action networks. So building these networks where people can connect with one another in order to collaborate in building the world that they want, whether that's a local world, but also providing the social infrastructure that allows them to connect with other people all over the globe, rendering that work scalable and connected. During the episode, we discuss the details of what is the problem with mainstream media and how we can fix it. We discuss the power of narrative, of story, and how to reimagine the story of now in order to get people on board with building a new future together. We discuss creativity. We discuss the education system, social architecture, the economy, disconnection, the private sphere and the public sphere, and a new politics centered around relationships. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Indra, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm excited to be chatting with you. As am I. Could you give a brief background of your quite illustrious uh, career of campaigning and working with uh, the people around the UK, um, just for anyone that hasn't been introduced yet to your work? Right. I mean, I'm interested that it seems an illustrious career because I, the way that I see it, I'm always working from just outside the public space. Right. Bit of an if you like, of new thoughts and ideas. Um, I started out as a journalist, in fact, and I became very interested in the power of journalism and became hugely disillusioned with it, in fact. Mm. Um, and then went to work for a while in, uh, I'm trying to understand what conflict is and worked in the field of conflict transformation, uh, studying under someone called Johann Galtung, who was quite controversial as a peacemaker. And then uh, moved into an understanding of soft power. So the difference between hard power and soft power, we can go into that a little mm. bit later. And this was, uh, this became a, a good subject for me to grapple with. I saw the relationship between soft power and a kind of rising feminine intelligence in the world, which was not really the way it was being talked about. Uh, in the arena of international relations, uh, which is where it's a you know a viable term, and in my new, with my new insight, so to speak, I I travelled quite a lot and ended up advising various governments and even talking a couple of times at NATO in a very uncomfortable way, I have to say. Mm -hmm. um, 
And maybe that's what you're describing as quite a career. You know, I was talking about the power of soft power uh, and writing for The Guardian for, for, for about six years. Mm-hmm. Before I challenged myself to try to embody this change um, that was possible as a result of understanding what soft power is. So at that time, I decided I do need to go into an understanding of what politics is, what is the structure, if you like, the story structure of politics, Mm. what it is today and how it makes us all so powerless. Um, And I joined a think tank and even stood to be an MP at one point, but it was just a story of constant disillusion with these ideas of power. Uh, And finally, um, I started this platform called The Alternative UK at the time with uh, my co-initiator, Pat Kane. And we were simply asking the question, if politics is broken, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. Um, Did that five years, well, we're still doing it. And over that period of five years, we, you'd be happy to say we actually came up with an answer to that. You know, there is an alternative. Mm. So now we're more focused on trying to bring that alternative into being through a number of uh, more focused initiatives. Uh, and that brings us more or less up to date. Somewhere in there, you might want to pull in the fact that I'm also a psychosocial therapist. So, I, I, you know, I was pre- practicing as a psychosocial therapist for few years although I don't do that so much anymore. I would love to tackle the sort of three major points that you raised. So number one because I'm also a journalist would be what the problem was with journalism uh, and then moving on to a definition of soft power what that is and hard power and the relations that we see and then obviously this alternative to to politics um, and how it can be manifested or built uh, hard won uh, by communities. Oh. So let's start with journalism. What was there an event um, that a sort of singular moment that brought you to become disillusioned with the industry, or was it a gradual awareness? Both, of course, you know. But I can mm. remember that it was my first job actually coming out of university. I found myself working for uh, an organisation called World News Media. Um, and I was specifically working on cosmetic world news, um, which may still exist today, so I don't want to bring it into any disrepute. But it was just the power that I had. Well, no, I was actually working for food world news, and there was two of them, cosmetic and food. And I just noticed that even as a young person, 22 years old, uh, I could go somewhere, write a story about this place, and change its fortune, actually. You know, mm. I could pick up a company and uh, be, you know, write a piece, uh, and it would change its market position. You know, and that was quite shocking, actually, especially when you could see that when you're editing a piece live, you know, you know, to bring out this magazine, you could just chop off this paragraph or add a paragraph, or you know, just according to the space that's available in the newspaper, and say. Mm. No, I'm going to say this and not say this. And, you know, I was just, I had all this power as a, as a very young journalist to give others power. And that was quite shocking for me as a young person to see that it was quite arbitrary how this power could be distributed. Um, but over, I would say over a longer period of time, uh, and it's still this case today, um, it's recognizing the, the, the power that journalists have to set an agenda and um, create the public space and land the story that becomes, in a way, the defining narrative of a culture. Um, it was particularly acute um, in, during the, it was actually during the Kosovo crisis when I noticed. Uh, through my work with Johan Galton, it became very clear to me that not in an unconscious way that our media in this country is, is, a, is, a, is a war media, that we predispose people to war all the time by the way that we report what we consider to be the facts. 
Mm. And uh, Galton gave rise to this concept of peace journalism, mm. not because he, you know, was any sort of, you know, hippie-like, uh, you know, idealistic person that wanted to just keep emphasizing, you know, peace is possible if we just try. That's That wasn't his intention of naming peace journalism. He named peace journalism because he wanted to flush out war journalism hmm. and show how um, so much is unquestioned when conflict breaks out. And we did a lot of work over a period of 10 years with this peace journalism project, um, inviting journalists in from all the main newspapers to to try to look at this phenomenon. And there was a lot of denial around it. You know, we would include, we're talking about the major newspapers, major um, reporters, BBC journalists. In fact, it was the BBC journalists at the time who were most in denial of the idea that they are establishment reporters, mm, that they take yeah, their views from the government about what is the fact. What are the mm. facts? Their own relationship to their news was we're just reporting the facts but there are other facts that you're not reporting Mm, they haven't really woken up to their own complicity in this likelihood of war breaking out after conflict breaks out so the the premise is that you know conflict is a normal part of society uh, and you can have extreme conflict but that doesn't necessarily have to lead to violence there's a lot of possibility that it can lead to resolution or even better transformation. Conflict can be the very thing that shows you what's wrong. You know, there's what there's something amiss with our relationships in this society. We need to blush this out. But if you're doing it well, it can lead to the transformation of that society. Mm-hmm. If you're simply buying into the conflict as an opportunity to gain power over the other side, it's a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. And it's going to lead to violence. Mm-hmm. And this culture of it constantly likely to lead to violence was also um, something that buys into the whole military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. we, have, we, have, we have the tools ready to go to war. Yeah. We're going to have to use those tools. That's what we've been saving them up for all this time, right? Yeah. So there's a sort of a um, likelihood of violence coming from conflict that is held without question in inevitability industry that we were trying to flush out Mm. that's an extension really of what i was discovering as a young journalist Mm. that the person who writes the story gets to name the action or gets to name the truth or the dynamics of a situation where so much possible yeah yeah it's sort of shocking um to see how far behind the industry is in regards to the academic literature so academic literature for at least 15 years has said uh, objectivity unbiased impartiality those things just don't exist that that they don't exist for any human being and they certainly don't exist for journalists and people report from within their spheres um, and that's not even building on Chomsky's, you know, unconscious bias theories. That's, you know, social studies that have um, sort of hammered out the data and gone, right, no, this this is a problem. And thinking that one can be objective and impartial, and impartial actually dictates another form of bias and creates what some theorists call a spiral of silence, ensuring that some facts, as you say, are never being reported on. And there's so many fascinating forms of journalism under this umbrella of constructive journalism, peace journalism and solutions journalism, mm. uh, social justice journalism that simply don't get a look in because they appear uh, less professional, quote unquote, because they are advocating in some sense for something, whether that's a different way of looking at or in, at fact or engaging with them. And yet it is the objective journalist who is equally advocating, but behind a veil of uh well opacity quite frankly but one that they are not themselves aware of so it's not malice and it's not conspiratorial um but there is a huge problem within the industry and and what to do about it well create new platforms as as you've done yourself yeah um so can we use that to then launch into soft power i recognize that now would do normally be the place we would go to speak about alternative the alternative and alternative politics but let's hit soft power and hard power first and define yeah. those terms so it's, it's a crucial piece of the puzzle um 
So I don't know if you know the term at all. So it's an international relations term. Um, that was no, I don't. Okay, right. I'll, so I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll just give you the, the, the premise of what what is soft power compared to hard mm. power. So it was born as a term in the night in the early nineties uh, by somebody called Joseph Nye, and it was a, it was a he was an advisor to the to White House, um, and it is an international relations term, and it and it, and it was it was brought into being because America was in its own crisis at that time, uh, of trying to imagine itself uh, as being a superpower after the failure to win the war with Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Hard power terms, you know. America was humiliated by Vietnam and they were grappling for some sort of way to make that sound okay, right? Um, mm. And Joseph and I assured um, the White House, you know, that America will always be a superpower, not because of its hard power, mm. but because of its soft power. And its soft power is the power of attraction, right? What makes people want to be in relationship? to America um, is its power, right? And the way that it could be summarized in, you know, in a short phrase was the American dream. So mm. it's the dream that is the source of America's power because everybody wants to believe in that possibility that anyone can become president. You know, mm. you America and it doesn't matter who you are, you're free to work hard and, be, you know, and fulfill your life and uh, it's all going to go well if you come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that's a dream that America has peddled, you know, always. And, you know, there's some truth in it, and there's also a lot of not truth in it. But it's a machine, you know, that peddles a story. It comes out of Hollywood. You know, it comes out of uh, the Statue of Liberty. It comes out of, you know, even to some extent, the story of Obama becoming president. This is mm-hmm. America's soft power. And because of its soft power and the way that everybody can identify with uh, with its message, uh, it will always be um, influential over over lives everywhere because it's it positions itself as the home of your your dream, your the home of your possibility of of becoming somebody. And you know it's it's been incredibly effective. Over the years, um, we might now be in a in an era of the decline of the American dream mm. to see. Yeah, definitely. But we might well because it's been very pierced, obviously, by what's happened with Trump and this overthrow. You know, this idea of a counter revolution yeah. is kind of the opposite of what America is supposed to be. Its ability to yeah. that as an American, you know. The identity is everything. So, so soft power is is really the story you're telling about yourself, and the and it and it's carried through connectivity and relationship. So, you know, even you you will have a story about yourself. I'm moving into relationship with that story of you that as you tell it, and that means that you can have some influence over my thinking about you, right? Mm-hmm. That is what soft power is. And that's really how the media now um, operates, you know, entirely through this peddling of stories. If you see, what what is really different about this era that we're in is that people are beginning to see it more clearly, right? So our ability as individuals actually taking part in the media sphere in the way that we have been able to over the last thirty years because of the internet has made us much more conscious of what soft power is and what the role of storytelling is in making mm. it come into being. Mm. So there's a kind of a new, there's a kind of an evolution into a more uh, observational, you know, as, as, you know, any kind of participant in social media can at once be really influenced by the stories being told, but also can actually increasingly step back from it and say, oh, I saw that. I saw what you were doing there. You know, do you know what I'm saying? So with, for example, fake news is a good example. That are people being able to identify that it is fake news? People even knowing that such a thing could be. Right. You know, that's the thing. Real news, fake mm. news, right? That, 
a sign of our evolution to some extent. Because before Let's... we didn't, we were just subject to it. Interesting. Let's hang on. Let, let's tease that out a little bit because I wonder if people only know if it's fake news because mainstream media used that term and said there is an other and you must not trust that other. Mm. And it's only because there is that sort of threat to, to hegemony um, and very often nonsensical threat to hegemony um, that the dominant narratives were forced to counterattack essentially. But if there had been like if those fake nude stories had been absorbed into the cultural consciousness in the way that any other sort of story is by a trusted outlet, would we have been able to identify them as fake? It's 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 interesting to try to 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 follow the trajectory of this growing awareness because I would say it started well before that fake news. I mean, obviously, when we can call something propaganda, mm. this was mm-hmm. years ago. You know, so we've always been able to, not always, but, you know, well before the internet, we were able to sort of separate ourselves from news and say, oh, that's propaganda. But not everybody could do that. Mm. You know, somebody somebody would literally, you know, America would used to leaflet bomb places, right? Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or any com- area of conflict, and somebody would pick up that leaflet and it, they would be told something they didn't know before and they'd believe it, right? That was a part of the times, you know, and now people will see a leaf like that and say, look what they're spreading, these leaflets, you know, they're much more able, people are much more able to see the mechanisms because slowly we've been learning about them. I mean, for me, it was a much more, you know, for me, it was a game changer when we, um, that whole period of time when everybody was watching Big Brother on television. I don't know if you... Mm -hmm, Vaguely, yeah. Oh, (laughs) Right, but Big Brother was, you know, basically inviting a load of people into a household, and now we're all going to watch how they behave. Hmm. That watching thing, of watching people behave, was also, you know, a period of like learning to see in a different way, using different eyes, developing conversations around what we're observing, hmm. and that. You know, I'm saying this as a psychosocial therapist. You know, the ability to observe is a very important one mm-hmm. rather than simply to be, you know, in the grip of something. Mm-hmm. You can separate yourself from the thing you're in the grip of and observe yourself being in the grip of something. Mm. Just developing your own power and your own agency. It doesn't mean that you're going to always reject it. You know, I'm... Mm. You know, I'm, I, you know, I'm a Buddhist, and then sometimes I see the literature around Buddhism, or I see the phenomenon as it appears in certain, and I'm looking at it rather than being subjected to it because it's not resonating with me, or, um, you know, I'm, I don't yet understand it. But the ability to separate yourself from something and then observe it is 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 a form of taking back power over something. So with the fake news, yes, I agree with you. Uh, I agree with what happened. I think that's a good description of what you describe. But I, what I see now is it's sort of everywhere. You know, people question what they're reading. You know, mm. they ask, is this true? Or is this somebody else's um, agenda that I'm just looking at mm. here? Some people are being caught up in, you know, for example, conspiracy theory. Um, and others will just reject conspiracy theory as if it's, not valid at all, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas I would say it's another era of our, you know, we're, we're watching people trying to make sense of the world in new ways because they've totally lost their trust in authority. So yeah. they've totally lost that thing. So now they're going to try and invent a new authority for themselves. That to me yeah. is how the conspiracy theories, that's the energy of a conspiracy theory. But, you know, once you've done that two or three times, and none of them really working for you, then you start to see, <laughs> oh, right. This, and then it named as that, and suddenly you're not that person anymore in the grip of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I d- yeah, I do wonder, though, the thing about observation, uh, I think it is extremely difficult to identify when one is in the grip of a thing, especially when uh, the thing of the, the thing of the grip that you're in, <laughs> the thing that you are gripped by is your own identity. 
some and something that you identify with. So the fact that these uh, conspiracy theories or people become theorists or people join a club or people sign up to a member of a political party and are not just affiliated, but I am, rather than I vote X, I am X. Mm. Um, and it's incredibly difficult to parse then because to observe yourself being in the grip of something that you identify with would be to kind of suggest that your identity might not be as concrete or as genuine or as authentic as one might wish for. And I've thought for the past few years that perhaps it is this sense of like growing precarity and uncertainty in the modern world, especially for people who were previously sort of protected or promised to enter into or at least stay in the middle class um, with that sort of being taken away and with the American dream being taken away, everything that modern capitalism promised, to then sort of have the capacity to engage with one's own identity and think, oh, that might not be what it is or what I once thought or that might not be solid either, doesn't leave people with very much, especially if we live in an atomized world where we don't have communities because that's why people rely so much on their own identities, isn't it? Because we don't have community. No, I think you've put, you've put the problem very well. Um, and I think that if you can... I'm just, so much is flooding in now from what mm. you... It's a sort of, but I would say that to be able to sit with loss of identity um, is it, hard, but it's also almost like this, the, the structure, you know, the infrastructure you need to build to be able to go to the mm. next your identity. Yeah. If you remember being an adolescent, you know, that was just, uh, it was part of growing up in a sense. And you've got to become able to be in, you know, we've all got to be, become able in a sense to be in this uncertainty uh, in order to find a new source of strength. Mm -hmm. One source of strength to the new source of strength, then we're still in a way dependent on an external source of strength, like an external, yes. you say, belonging to a labor party or, or belonging to a Buddhist movement, wh whatever. You know, if that becomes the thing that you are relying on for your identity, then you're, you are vulnerable anyway, because that could easily explode. And, you know, we're in this bigger picture now, which your podcast, you know, really draws attention to. You know, we're in, a, we are in an emergency, or at least we have conceived of it that way, right? Mm -hmm. Something is really breaking down. Yeah. That's for sure. So um, even if it's just the public imaginary, the social imaginary, it's breaking down, yeah. right? And we need to refine it. First, we have to be okay with its breaking downness and mm. thing around what, I mean, even what we're doing at this moment is trying to re-story um, this reality that we're in now. Mm -hmm. The way it can look to us, we use these words precarity and we use vulnerability and we use, you know, they're fear words. But how about we think about it as um, growing into something that we've not been able to be until now? Mm, okay. You know, so if you can imagine a future, even with, the, you know, to, to use your dreaming brain and just try and imagine even in a science fiction way, you know, how this could be better, actually. This could be yeah. better. And then try to imagine that actually what you're in is in that becoming. I'm becoming this. And it really changes the emphasis on what is your daily daily experience of life. Mm. You know, today you're waking up and thinking, I'm becoming that thing. We as a society are now becoming this possibility. It really shifts your idea of, of, of what this moment is. Um, and I think that's absolutely crucial. Um, that we, sh we change the discourse. We change the conversation around this, what this moment is. Because the minute you do that, you can sense your agency for the first time. And in fact, you then know what it is you're getting away from, which is the world in which you had no agency, the world in which. So in many ways, it's a bit like child moving into adolescence. 
you know, but imagining adulthood. You know, mm. we mature now as a global society. We've never been able to do it until now. And let's commit to that future. And then let's see how it's unfolding. How concretely is this thing unfolding? Show me the evidence, right? Mm. And I, I, I'm there for it. And that's really the call for us of, um, you know, after five years of doing the alternative, we've seen that there is something actually really in reality arising and that most people have no access to this because the media is telling us that we're in collapse. We're in collapse. We're all going to be scrambling for the scarce, you know, resources that we have. Uh, human beings are powerless to stop this. It's all down to the scientists. We have to rely on them to save our skins. That's the story. We're in that. I, I have to say I disagree because I wish I would, I would like to see more of that story. I think we're still in the story of like, yeah, think, things are um, things are quite bad. Uh, people are working on it. Things might be very bad, but we're not going to tell you exactly what that means or what that looks like. And therefore, everybody is sort of constantly disempowered because there is no... I mean, how can you have any agency in a world that hasn't yet been painted for you? Um, so, I mean, I really don't see any discussion of resources. I don't see any discussion of collapse i see no in certainly in mainstream media no grappling with hmm capitalism might not be the way forward you might get the odd thing from like george monbiot who is an absolute legend you know in the guardian but typically i think we're still in a story of denial and i think then for people that do begin to educate themselves very often you go to collapse Mm-hmm. And, oh, everything, this this is an absolute disaster. I would have never thought to learn so much about how all this could possibly go wrong. Mm-hmm. It must inevitably go wrong then. Even if you look at the social science studies of like, you know, empires or civilizations typically last, oh, I can't remember, you know, 8,000 years and we're on 10,000 and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's incorrect. Everybody who just listened, those were random numbers. Please don't quote them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it seems to me absolutely, though, I, I do agree with you that the, the, the possibility of it all, the potential of it all, uh, and the willingness of so many people to do something with it and about it is fantastic. And if we don't change the narrative and if we don't offer the narrative, then there will be no way through. We really need to build the story of now in order to get there. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm... I'm going to try to be in this conversation with you specifically. Great. Because I do, I totally get what you're saying, and I'm not going to deny any of what you're saying. That is what I think is the mainstream story. So, But my question to you is, what's happening to you in this podcast? Because you're committed to this, right? Yeah. So what's happening to you? Where do you think the reality lies um, about the future? Hmm. What do I think? Well, I don't think the future is made in mm. any way. Mm. Um, I have, I learn more and more every day and more and more really scary things, but I have more hope every day mm. because my job is speaking to people who are experimenting and trying and working within their communities. So from what I see, it's not just that we have like, you know, the technological solutions at hand, we just need to scale them. We also have the political um, solutions at hand. We have the communal solutions at hand. We have food solutions. We have everything at hand. There are people in communities all around the world that are experimenting with these things and implementing them. And the problem is power. There is a a, a vacuum of power. Power is a resource that is uh, married to financial powers. So money is a resource. Um. And I also think the problem is, which I've only really recently started to think of it in the past few months, but we seem to have, a f- there's pretty good ideas of where we want to go. And the beauty of this sort of decentralized network is that there's lots of different options and you can just kind of pick one. Um, but how do we rewrite exactly as you're saying how do we rewrite the story of now to adequately and accurately reflect the truth 
but also the possibility of the next step. Hmm. So I think in no way the world is doomed. And I think that... I think also like the current world, it's just not that great. Like there's lots of things I want to keep like vaccines and medicine and all this kind of stuff, but generally like let's take, let's strip some of it back to its bare bones. But the future, the future could very well be miserable if we don't find a way to tell people what that really means and what other meaning they could have in their lives, I think. So do do you have children? No. Yeah. So imagine the young people, you know, who are growing up today and they're being educated at school. What is it that you would want to teach them? Citizenship. Uh-huh. I would want to teach them how to speak to one another with kindness. I would want to teach them that their strength lies in their relationships to one another to the planet, to their food, to art, to creativity. I would want to teach them how to enjoy creativity and the uncertainty of creativity and build resilience in that. Hmm. Um, I would want to teach them how to like be bored, how to accept being a bit bored and being restless and being a bit uncomfortable. Hmm. And above all, I would want to give them like a profound curiosity in the positive impact that they could have on the people around them mm. uh, and themselves. And then only after all of that, English and math and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's really missing, isn't it? This idea mm. or education that you can make a difference. You, you know, who you are matters. I mean, when I say matters, literally brings matter about, right? Mm. The way the world. So... This idea that we can teach every young person agency um, is 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 in itself a game changer. I mean, I was I was uh, a um, God, what's the name? Whoops. You know, at school, I was on the board of governors at school. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, and I suppose I was constantly shocked you know, at what we are teaching young people. You know, we're mm. mostly teaching them kind of obedience, actually, and, and know yes. your limitations. And um, creativity is is kept in a very local way, you know, to create mm. a project or... But there's no sense that we, in, even in this age, that the way we are, you know, on the you know, on social media, for example, or the way that we relate to the entire planet, you know, we can't be creative in that way. That's never even imagined. And yet we know now that that is the world in which we live, that we can infect people with new possibilities all the time. I mean, this, you know, I suppose mm-hmm. Greta was just a demonstration of that, you know, that sh- you can change minds um, but then, you know, so is ISIS, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's competing stories all the time. But in really practical ways, you know, the the building or the creation of a new architecture of possibility, you know, how young people or how people themselves, and I'm not going to say only young people, this, this includes everyone, you know, can begin to... Uh, get a, a, a new sense of their own agency in the world, how they influence others, and how by coming together with others, stuff can get done that wasn't done before. This sense of there is a, a, a missing social architecture for the agency of human beings um, is really what we are pointing at as the new politics. You know, within, you know in an era of new expectations for people there is there are tools mechanisms uh methods that allow you to come together with others build a new story of possibility influence others through that and something can grow right and then eventually what you see is that this growing sense of what is possible also affects 
government, actually, because ultimately the current structures, whether it's business or government, their real power is sourced from getting the votes of those people. So you'll see, you know, more and more, and it's always been the case, but it's more obvious now that, you know, political parties and politicians, they bend themselves to the will of the people. You know, they try to make, find out what is the people want and try to be the deliverers of that thing, you know, and compete with each other to be the person who delivers on that thing. You know, that is the soft power of, of people. But when it is, when it is getting actually organized as groups of people in places creating what we call community agency networks, deciding for themselves that they want to use this kind of power, that they're going to grow this kind of food, that they're going to have this kind of care in their community. That is the power of people coming together, recognizing each other in this era of, um, you know, rebuilding social infrastructure. So we are rebuilding it as we speak. That's what we saw after five years at The Alternative, that this um, capacity for humans to come together and build something from it, grow a new story because they're really looking for a new story and because they want to belong to something and they want a sense of meaning and purpose now that they've never really recognized that they could have until now. Mm. It's, it's just like a, you know, it's like a body that's coming into, into itself. And the role of people like yourself and myself, to my mind, is to pay attention to it, to give it, it's, you know, to, to give it more attention, invest more in its possibilities see it grow it's literally like we've got a plant here on our doorstep mm. let's not step on it let's grow it through giving it attention through up you know through um helping others to see that human beings have you know until now they have been really trapped you know in a machine that that we're basically the history of humankind in the western world is that you know we're like basically slaves to a machine mm. caught on the hamster wheel convinced that we have to buy stuff all the time in order to impress people that we don't even have time to see, you know, yeah. just slaves to the economy. When people, COVID, you know, did quite a good job for a certain section of the population, I'm not saying all by any means, you know, to wake people up to time and space and like give you a bit more of this and suddenly you don't really want to be this slave anymore. You've got a bit of your freedom back by chance. Oh, you've moved into relationship with your family for the first time. Mm. Even on Zoom, I have to say, people had a had an incredible experience meeting people they don't usually meet. You know, mm. having these face to face conversations—it's literally like a waking up period for people that they can't put back in the box now. Mm. And it's this that I'm really trying to say. We, it's our job to pay attention to it, you know, like to 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 grow it as if it was, you know, a little sapling that wants to become a tree. Um, yeah. So it's there's nothing about what you said before that I don't agree with. The only thing that I would say is that you know, even members of my family who are and certainly, you know, friends maybe that I've had since school or whatever. You know, I know plenty of people who will be continue to be blind to the reality that you and I are trying to, sh to like, show all the time. You know, any Daily Mail reader, you know, <laughs> I mean, what can I say? You know, it's like they want, they, they, but they know they're precarious because you can tell the front pages of the Daily Mail are always, you know, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. You know, they're afraid. It's all peddling fear of this future that's coming down the line that you have, you know, you've got no control over. Mm. They might never see it the way that we see it. They might never do the same path that we are, have been treading, but they can still buy into a new reality as it arises if it comes to them in a way that they will see as 
you know, attractive. You know, for yeah. example, you know, I mean, you know, for human, you know, for human beings, for example, to win over things or to have triumphs or to make real change possible is always going to hit the headlines. You know, the things that are unfortunately, you know, mined for their, just for their excitement, for their ability to sell newspapers is usually around division. And uh, calling other people out and trying to make you know everybody feel superior, but there's a sort of constant celebration of human achievement that I've noticed, even in um, the most divisive uh, mm-hmm. um, kind of um, newspapers. So I, I, I suppose what I'm saying is, you, you, you're right. It might never be that the people who are you know uber capitalists now. And not questioning anything, they might never do the same journey that we're doing, but that doesn't mean that they can't move into this new reality as well. I I think everyone could or might. Um, I think it's very likely that the only people who would really reject a new reality would be people that that, that lose oh. a lot. Um, sort of the the powerful, the elite, previously they were the aristocrats, you know, whatever you want to call them. Um, And so I think for anyone else, that means it's really on us to figure out how do I tell the right story or how do I tell the story in a way that engages with, with with different people or how also do I go out and listen to those people to hear their needs in order to build that into whatever uh, future that we're trying to, to co-create. Um, I think there's such an interesting relationship between agency and disempowering in it in an age where we are more empowered than ever before. Why is it that people would choose disempowerment when we could have agency? And I think there is a lot of choosing disempowerment, um, perhaps because it's sort of sold to us as a lack of agency um, and that we think that that might be the only way in order to be. But I think that's also, as you were saying, this adolescence to adulthood, there is a sense of like, well, growing up and what is it that I want to achieve and responsibility and and responsibility for others. And in the story that we've been told, it's only responsibility for self. That's what capitalism uh, says. Responsibility for self and community small c, if that. Um, whereas when you sort of widen that out to thinking about the real interconnectedness of everything and the possible responsibility that one has to one's community and that being wider, that being global now with climate change and with the amount of emissions that, um, you know, OECD countries um, are belching out into the atmosphere. I think, and also to put a finer point on it, the fact that the battles that need to be won now are immense. Uh, there are no, there's no low hanging fruit left anymore in our <laughs> culture. Even, you know, I, even I speak to scientists about it, you know, they're like, oh God, you know, all the major scientific things were kind of done and they were often arrived at with like false logic in the 1800s or even the earlier part of the, the 1900s. But now people have to be very precise and nuanced. It is we live in an increasingly complex world, which means the actions that we take need to be increasingly complex. And I think that it, sometimes in the face of that complexity, which is a globalized world with a financialized economy, global economy kind of entrapping everybody and running everything beyond any one person or one government's control, um, then perhaps it's a complexity that we just can't quite grasp at all the time. And therefore, it's easier to choose a kind of disempowerment because on some like I don't know uh, on some phenomenological level we actually are disempowered because things are too complex now okay and great Lots no, of no, 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 no. you've set you've, you've set you've set you've set something up there which I, I will now give you an, a counter story please okay. um Let's start with the idea of complexity. Or, or no, let's start with the idea of disconnection. Mm-hmm. So that that's a way of talking about our reality, that we're all disconnected. But is it actually true? Mm. It, 
Mm. Yeah. And less so than ever. Yeah. I mean, boy, an experience of disconnection that has been architected for us by the public space, which has been designed to disconnect us. But underneath every public space, there's a private space. You know, when you walk off the street and you walk into your home, a different self appears. And that self is very connected, actually. You're connected to your friends, your family, your environment. You think you can think about anything. If you have a quiet space and privacy, you feel very connected to the world. Mm. You're able to think about it and care about it. And I, I would say that it's kind of a male-female language problem we have here because the language of connectedness, relationship, love, care, um, is just as present, actually, in our world but it doesn't have um, the same valency. It doesn't have the same. It doesn't. Re- it, does, it isn't given the same power as the language of disconnectedness, which is about you have to buy into the public space through getting a job, you know, clocking up your hours, earning a salary, feeding the machine. You become part of a bureaucracy. And it's through the lenses of that bureaucracy that things can't flow anymore. And that's why everything looks so complex. Mm. So when you're trying to scale something from small to large, it looks complex because of the straight lines that you're trying to, you know, capture the increasingly distant realities that you can't really see. And these straight lines of kind of fake that just representing the relationship between you and the rest of the world, mm. which you already know is not very real, right? So, um, but you have to, you have to obey it. You know, you have to obey the money system. You have to obey the political system. You have to obey the hierarchies because it's the only way that we get organized. Um, and because we haven't been able to ensure the future of our world we now acknowledge, oh, it's all too complex, right? But imagine if you were just a plant, uh, you know, in the ground and you had your mycelial networks and you were re- obeying the seasons and responding to the light and the dark, you wouldn't call this complex. You'd call it alive. You'd call it life itself, you know, and you would know that everything is connected to everything. Um, and in nature, we can imagine that, right? And as, as, and as, as women, we can imagine it much more easily than men can actually, because we haven't had the power historically in the public space. We get, you know, we've just built our own, you know, we've, we've historically, I'm not saying this is the case today. But we've come from this uh, understanding of what life is and how everything is connected that we've just been able to keep nurturing and keep alive because uh, it's kind of in the private world, in the domestic world. And what and what's mm-hmm. happened with um, the internet is that the boundary between the private and the pub and the public has blurred enormously. And now all over the internet, we have this private language, you know, power of emotion and connection and relationship is all over the internet, right? Mm -hmm. So it's public space and people have are growing their expectations from it much more than they used to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And their connectedness to each other is much more visible and palpable and real, right? So you can be, I can remember, you know, over COVID in particular, how many times I've sat in a room with maybe, I don't know, 10 high thinking, mostly male, um, you know, innovators 
talking about our disconnection. And I've, every time I thought, hang on a minute, I'm sitting here, I'm talking to somebody in Africa, I'm talking to somebody in America, I'm talking to somebody in Germany, and I've just heard you tell a really intimate story about your life. Mm. Why are we disconnected? Can we not acknowledge our connectedness and this era of connectedness? And can we not build on that mm. and grow that and grow that conversation? Because when we know that we are connected and we can be connected and actually our history is showing us now a new connection possible that was never possible before mm. can we not build on that story and you know give people expectations arising from that and how they can be part of it in a direct way yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you know because that's that's also happening you know and the and you say there's no low-hanging fruit this is the low-hanging fruit <laughs> The possibility of relationship between people all over the globe, which means there's a possibility of us coming into empathy with each other's, you know, decision-making processes, all sorts of things are possible now. And what we're describing concretely at the, at the alternative is that the infrastructure is actually being built, right? It's not something airy-fairy. It's not that we can all dream into the future. It's not that. <laughs> Infrastructure is being built from a community agency network. First of all, they've been building for decades, you know, cooperatives, transition towns, eco-villages. They've all been doing this work in isolation. But we're now on the brink of, um, and, we've, and we've been seeing that it happens, you know, it's also municipalism is another form of these bioregionalism. Um, you know, these, these things are happening at many, many different levels and they're all connecting up with, you, with each other globally. So now you have global networks of bioregions. You know, you have global networks of municipalism or mayors who are committed to green futures. You have global networks of eco-villages. All of these places are people coming into some sort of recognition that they have some power over where they are and they're going to make decisions locally with the people in the area. And it isn't simply local, it's cosmo-local. So cosmo-local means, yes, we're on the ground, but we're also connecting at the global level and we're all exchanging ideas and developing commons, you know, of resources that we can share freely amongst each other. It's contradicting the old economy as well. So all of these possibilities that were once just possibilities, something you could write a book about, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson, I loved your interview, right? But it's also real. There's actual infrastructure being built now that makes these things real, makes it possible to distribute resources in new ways, new stories arising, and mostly for pockets of people the story of the future is unfolding in quite a different way than the one you described. And to my mind, the key things are building the connectivity between these cans, we call them, which will take all sorts of different forms from the neighborhood all the way up to a city level, up to a bioregional level. This is about people coming together and realizing things. So the infrastructure between them has to be technologically en enabled you know, much better than it is now because most of them are doing or seeing what they're doing is they're quite isolated and they see themselves as separate from society, which they are certainly separate from the mainstream story of society. Um, so the, 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 the task now that needs funding actually, it needs enabling is to grow the, the technology of their interconnectedness so that they can grow a better story. But arising from that is the new media. So until now, the media that you can, you know, you can tell a new story, but you're put into the positive news category. You know, like, oh, people will tell better stories. They're the people who just, you know, they're just seeing things in a better way. They're just positive. Um, this is the reality. What we're trying to do now is develop a media system that is directly linked to this new socio-economic political system 
that is arising organically from people using their agency in new ways. Um, and we see it actually as a parallel polis almost, you know, in other words, it's, it's going to come into being on its own. It won't do so by permission of the government. It's grow on its own terms. Um, but its attraction ultimately will be that it's, you know, it's making a difference for people. Mm. It's, it's growing a new system and it's, um, you know, able to use these resources that we know we do have. Um, and mostly it's creating a new sense of purpose and belonging for people that they can choose something else. You know, right now, most people think there's nothing to choose, but this is a growing thing and people can choose it. And, but we need to be able to show more people, attract more people, invest more in that possibility. So once, Absolutely. yeah, you know, once you commit to that as a sort of um, way of being at this time, then you'd be surprised how much springs up around you. You know, other people who are doing the same thing. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. human potential, mm. own potential. You know, as a as a as a person, not I don't call these change makers. Um, I see them more as people who, you know, who reveal a new reality as possible because of the way they're now being on the planet. So you change the discourse. Everything you're doing here on your podcast, you're, you're changing the discourse. If you're lucky, you feel and become a different person as a result of this new mm -hmm. discourse. And then you start to reveal a different reality being possible. So... You know, yeah, it's a sort of a different. We call it, in Buddhism, it's called the three realms of consciousness. You know, it's 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 the the one that you have about yourself, the one you have about your community, and the one you have about your world. They're all contained in the same person. We mm. not either individualists or socialists or globalists. We're all capable of of existing in any of those realms at any given time. And it's being able to take you on your own responsibility for all of those realms, being in it on those terms that um, really shifts consciousness, actually. <laughs> I think that is probably just the loveliest note to end on. I'm sure if we, ha if we had all day, we could go back and forth on this. I think um, there is a question around that power going up against power and you know ossified ossified power um yeah. and the inequitable distribution of all of it all but i certainly feel that on my own journey from doing this podcast the more stories that you learn and the more that you learn are possible the more hopefully you become and the more you then seek out those things i am particularly curious though right now as to like how is it then that i can use my I don't know, vague knowledge, <laughs> connections, whatever, to build out a story that is attractive yeah. um, for for everyone. I think I think that this process has to be communal rather than um, as you as everything you're saying rather than this idea of like everybody sort of individually going through their own sort of oh I don't know spiritual spiritual awakening is a word that I'm sure some listeners would be very uncomfortable with hearing or yeah. whatever. Um, but it needs to be it needs to be robust you know this like these networks that you're building it's important to have this robust concre concrete infrastructure to in in generate these uh changes and offer these possibilities communally rather than expecting everybody to just go off and i don't know go to a yoga retreat and come back different absolutely yeah. i agree i totally agree with you it's yeah. You know, you have realization where you, when you can see it echoed on the outside of you, you know, it's not simply your own personal conviction about something. Mm. You know, uh, it's not determination. I'm going to, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to convert you, you know, mm. you know, I'm, I'm more in relationship with you and what, yeah. and what I'm hearing from you shapes the conversation we're having entirely. Yeah. 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 That, that's, that's it. That's the practice. You know, yes. ultimately, the practice is relationship making and being in communion with other people. And, you know, the, the amazing part of that is it doesn't 
it can happen, it should happen, you know, in your personal life. You know, the greatest um, gift is to have somewhere you can go regularly to have that communion with people and be able to speak into that space what you are experiencing and then hear from others how they would respond to what you're saying or how they might give you an alternative to what you're saying. And you grow your awareness of what it means to be you in this world, uh, but also what it means to be the other. Yeah. You know, so diverse space, the more diverse those spaces are, the better. Really hearing from other voices and seeing how that changes who you are. Um, that's the area of growth. And it's, it's very available to people. You know, even the, even whether it's in a in a pub or in a football club or in um, you know, I don't know, a coffee morning, whatever. To commit yourself to that sort of growth through conversation and through relationships is an incredible practice, to be honest. Um, especially at this time, um, and then you defy the odds because you'll then you'll notice what. The newspapers are saying, people are this, people are that. And you're saying, well, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> I want to make up my own mind. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And this all needs, I mean, relationship making, that needs to become the definition of politics. Oh. The art of building relationships and maintaining them fairly, honestly, generously. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good dream. That's a good story. It's a good thing to work towards. <laughs> Indra, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a pleasure. My mm -hmm. final question for you is who would you like to platform? Yeah, um, I gave it some thought and I hope it's allowed that I'm going to nominate um, my partner and co-initiator because yeah. I, I noticed that when I'm talking about these possibilities that I'm not always addressing the other side, which is a sort of a more male perspective, to be honest, but just as generative. And I can't do without those possibilities. So um, I'm, not, I'm going to nominate Pat Kane. He wrote a book called The Play Ethic. Um, God, you know, um, 10 years. Oh, gosh, it's probably more, 20 years ago. Um, and he's an artist and a musician, has been a political player as well. But he's he's the person who can really talk about this era of uh, artificial intelligence, of technology, of imagination, and how what he calls super play is our is our capacity as human beings. So we're into an era of super play, and we've got to we've got to get good at that. Really, that's what he's proposing, and he's been the editor of the Daily Alternative. Um, so he sees in the past, he's also been the founder of, uh, newspaper titles. So he really sees the role of the media and how that is part of the, uh, narrative building. But, you know, that's where the play, there's a lot of play in that space too. Mm, interesting. All yeah. right. Brilliant. I can't yeah. wait to speak with him. Thank you so much for your time, Indra. Yeah. Thank you so much too. If you want to learn more about Indra's work, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.